and welcome to the Sunday Salon, the podcast that celebrates brilliant books and the women who write them. I adored this episode. Lily King is the author of five novels, including most recently the phenomenal bestseller Writers and Lovers, which documents the creative and romantic travails of aspiring writer Casey Peabody. It's one of my favourite books of the year, and so speaking to Lily felt like a fitting finale to this series. I loved hearing about everything from why she writes by hand to how she forces herself to work, even when she's not feeling inspired, and so much more. It was a gorgeous conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Lily, welcome to the Sunday Salon. Thank you so much for coming on today. I'm so excited to talk to you, and I've got so many questions for you. Oh, I'm so excited to be here, Alice. Thank you. Thank you so much. I wonder if, before we get into everything, if you could just describe writers and lovers to me. I'm sure lots of people will have read it, in fact, but but there's bound to be quite a few listening who haven't yet either. How would you describe it? Um, let's see. I would describe it as a coming-of-age novel, although, although, to be honest, she's 31 years old, and I feel like it's more a woman in transition than exactly a coming of age novel. And, and it's about a, a woman who's just lost her mother and she is $70,000 in debt. And she's been trying to write a first novel for six years. And she lives in a moldy room at the side of a garage and works as a waitress. And she's really, and has had disastrous kind of adventures in love and is really just trying to get across this huge abyss sort of to the rest of her life or to a future that seems more manageable and recognizable to her. And, and it's really about that struggle, the creative struggle, the grief struggle, financial struggle, everything. There's a lot there that I want to pick up on, actually. Um, you touched on quite a lot of things I want to ask you about. But before I do, I wonder if I could just sort of rewind a little bit and ask a bit of background about you. I mean, writing obviously is a big theme of the book and you are a writer. Have you always, where does that come from? What was your childhood like and, and, and where did that sort of interest in in writing and, and in books come from? I had a mother who gave me a lot of books from a very, very early age. Just a lot of books and, and I, I was a big reader at first but when I read Judy Bloom when I was probably in second or third grade, that was the those were the books. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, and it's not the end of the world. That made me think about the person writing the book and the fact that that was a human and I was a human and that maybe I could do that too. Um, there was something about her realism. All, all the other books I had read before then were mostly fantasy with talking animals and visits to you know, made up planets. And I, I enjoyed them, but I really, really liked the family tales that, that Judy Bloom was telling. And I thought, I want to do that. I want to write for kids is what I thought, you know. And I didn't have any creative writing classes or anything until I got to high school. And then I was lucky enough to have a teacher who actually taught creative writing. And uh, and he taught, he taught it to juniors and seniors in high school, so 11th grade and 12th grade. And he he told me in ninth or 10th grade that, you know, I should probably take that class. And I was so excited and I waited so long to take those classes. And um, and they were taught very much like a 
workshop in graduate school is taught now. We had to read each other's work and critique it and discuss it in class. And we had to have a, a three and a half page short story on his desk every Monday morning before eight o'clock. And, and I feel like that was it for me. I mean, I got in so many of my 10,000 hours just in high school, writing all those stories. And I, it was really the only thing I, I wanted to do. I liked to do, I had any interest in. So I was, you know, lucky in that way. I didn't have to choose between that and a soccer career or something like that. And what about when it came to kind of doing it professionally and getting published? Much of Writers and Lovers deals with the sort of the struggle of writing and, and the struggle of sort of making it as a writer. Um, your first novel was published in, in 1999 to great acclaim, The Pleasing Hour. Was that your first attempt at a novel? I mean, how did that come about? How did you go from from those classes where you were writing a short story a week to, to having a book published? Yeah, I, it was a long slog, really. I mean, I went to college and I took a lot of creative writing classes and then I graduated and somewhere along the line I heard about grad school and the possibility of, you know, I didn't have any money, but they were there were scholarships and fellowships if you taught and stuff. And I finally figured that out. So I went to, to graduate school in Syracuse, New York, and I studied with Tobias Wolf, um, who was one of my favorite writers at the time. And then, you know, I'd just written short stories all the way until I was 30, I guess, or maybe 28. And when I got out of graduate school, I'd heard that you if you did sell something, you'd make more money if you wrote a novel instead of a short story collection. So I took short two short stories that I had that I wrote in grad school, and I kind of mushed them together and decided that that would be my novel. And so I went forward with that. And I kind of took the plot of one story and sort of the tone and the ambiance, really, of the of the other one and went from there. I mean, you can't really find the stories now in the novel. But that was definitely the the inspiration. And you can tell, too, that I was a short story writer in that novel because the, the chapters very much have a short story arc to each of them. And they really could be kind of linked stories if you if you wanted to read it that way. But it, it definitely tells a story of one of one person and one family. But so so I did that and I was I must have been about 28, I would say, 28 or 29, when I got that idea to do that. But I took a job in Spain teaching high school English, and it was such an overwhelming job that I could only work in the summers. So for the first two summers, I, I, I worked on that novel. And then I left Spain, and I moved to California. And I had many jobs there teaching the SAT, which is, you know, kind of like a finals exam for getting into college. And I worked at a used bookstore and a lot of, and I was a babysitter and, uh, and I slowly, you know, kept writing, kept writing. And I finished the first draft of my novel in California. And by then I was probably 31 or 32. And then I went to a writer's colony for two months and I tried to work on it there, but I ended up falling in love with a poet and really wasting my time at that writer's colony. And then I moved in to the attic of my sister's house, my older sister's house. And that's where I, I revised and I finished. I worked at a restaurant and um, I slowly started, you know, figuring out how one finds a publisher. And the first step was an agent. And so I sent out my novel 
to literally sent it in the mail, like the whole thing, no query, no anything, because I really didn't know what I was doing. And I sent it to about, in the, in total, 19 agents, I think. And three of them were interested. And so I kind of talked to them on the phone or met with them. And I went with the one who was in New York and seemed to have kind of the most, I don't know, famous list of writers. You know, she seemed like she probably would get the most attention from a publisher, you know? And so I went with her and I really liked her. And so then she sent it out to, I think, nine publishing houses. And at first I think there were five interested and it was all very fast after that. I had waited probably a year and a half to get an agent. I'm not kidding. And then, and then when we sent it out, I think it was like a week. It was so great. And then there was an auction and, um, it just all happened very fast. And I got to talk to all these editors and I went with the one who had the most ideas for changes and that sort of was the most critical. One of them was like, it's perfect. I wouldn't change a thing. And I was like, click, <laughs> I really needed someone to work with who was going to, you know, help me be, be better. And so I went with somebody who offered me less money, but she, I could tell, tell we would just work together really well. And she has been my, ed- my editor ever since I've been with the same publishing house. And uh, we've had just a, a really amazing time together. It's been incredible. How did you keep your kind of motivation up and sort of, I suppose, keep the faith during that whole period when you were doing lots of different jobs, which weren't really careers, they were jobs, and you were kind of intermittently working on, on this novel? I feel like I would get distracted and give up. How did you kind of keep yourself on the straight and narrow? It was hard. I mean, I... You know, I had, I mean, that's what I really wanted to capture in Writers and Lovers. It's just all of the doubt and all of the people around you kind of suggesting that maybe you should do something else, move on, you know, suggesting that it was sort of embarrassing that you were still a waitress at age 34. And uh, I, I think that that was, that was hard. Kind of public opinion was, was, was a hard thing as well as what was going on in my mind and, you know, being very critical of the work and having a lot of doubt that I would ever finish. But I think at a certain point, you know, I had played my cards. I mean, I had, I'm not very good at gambling terms, but you know, I had loaded up all my eggs in that basket. I had no other basket. And, and, and so I just had to go for it. You know, I I just had to go for broke because because there wasn't anything else. And I had to see it through. I just, I had to. And I I mean, I think I was probably ready once the, if the novel had been rejected everywhere, I I don't know what I would have done at that point. I mean, I probably would have had a really great high school English teaching career. I loved the job I had teaching high school English in many different schools, actually. And so I probably would have done that and maybe would have tried to keep going with writing. I don't, I just, I don't even see myself ever giving it up, to be honest with you, but it's hard to know. I just, I just got lucky with my first one, you know. Can I ask about your kind of, the mechanics of your, your writing? I've, I've read you say that you think routine is, is 99.9% of it and that you write by hand. Can Mm. you just tell me a little bit about that writing by hand and also kind of what time of day you write and, and how you maintain that routine and what kind of workload you, you cover in a day? Yeah. I mean, it's always good to hear your words told back to you because right now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm promoting uh, a new book here that hasn't come out there yet. And 
I have lost my writing routine entirely. But ideally, I get up early and I I have to write the absolute opposite of Hemingway. I have to write on a full stomach. <laughs> so I have a really big breakfast, usually of two eggs and avocados and all kinds of things. And then I make a, a pot of tea and I bring it up to my study. And I try to write. I, I used to be a really early morning writer, but since I had kids, I started writing when they went to school. And so now I still kind of keep those hours. I usually get up around, I get up to my study around nine and I try hard to keep everything out, you know, no other commitments until about two or three. If I'm revising, I can go much longer. But if I'm writing blank page stuff, I, I can't write for more than, you know, I can't be up here with it for more than five or six hours. That doesn't mean that I'm writing straight the whole time. I mean, I might be reading, I might be doing a little research, I might be taking notes, but I do try to just kind of be in the room as much as I can for those hours. And then I do write by hand when I do my first draft. I think it helps me just psychologically think, okay, I can put whatever I need to on this, you know, little notebook page and I, I, I no one's going to see it. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be polished. It's just kind of a way for me to give myself a break and not let the critic, I, I try so hard to keep my critical editorial voice in my head out of my head while I'm writing the first draft because it's just not helpful. I just try to put down everything I hear and see and imagine and 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 then when I put it on the computer later, much later, you know, sometimes months later, sometimes I write a whole notebook of handwriting and then and then I'll put it in and it takes me months to put it into the computer because I'm revising and also because I'm a really slow typist. But I when it goes onto the computer, that's a really great step for a revision for me. And I can play around and I can let the critic in a little bit. And, and yet the, the creator is there too. And so we're kind of, you know, messing around with it, but, but polishing it a little bit. I've just been watching the, the Beatles get back, you know, the... the mm, it's amazing, disaster. isn't it? Oh my God, it's so fun. I mean, for a, you know, it's for the creative writing process. There's just nothing like it. And my husband and I were talking this morning about how, you know, they just, they, they were coming up with the melodies and then he, he, they were trying to figure out at one point, Harrison was trying to figure out a, a, a line for something, you know, a song that he's just started and uh, he can't figure it out. And, and John's like, just, you know, just say whatever the words will come later. You know, you'll, the word you'll find the words later. Just throw in whatever word and, and keep going. And I think that's really true for me too, especially with the first draft, you know, is just to, to keep going with the momentum and not, not worry too, too much about the perfect word. You know, I, I use a lot of parentheses, a lot of stuff in the margins. I just kind of try to keep going because, you know, you're also, as a writer, you know, you don't exactly have a melody, but you do have a rhythm and you do have kind of the momentum of the story and the, the story as a whole. And I think of that a little bit as as the musical piece to it. And so you don't want to get too wrapped up in, in the lyrics, you know, in, the, in, in every individual word. Although there's nothing like writing a sentence that thrills you because then, you you know, you you develop confidence in the project. And so it's not like I write a series of crappy sentences, but it's okay if there's one or two crappy sentences in there, you know, per page, then I can come back and, and fix it. 
Do you plot it out ahead of this um, handwriting or is that kind of the plotting as well? I like to have a little idea. I usually, when I start, I have a sort of an emotional arc that I know I want the character to go on, you know, to take. And so I kind of know where they start emotionally and where they will end and that there has to be some sort of, you know, arc to it, some sort of going up and then coming down kind of thing. But the actual things that happen are often things I don't know. I, I, I try to have some ideas, but when I'm writing is when I get most of my ideas. So I have to be writing to be able to move it along. I can't, you know, lie in bed and plot it out. I can try and I do try, but I think the most effective thing is while I'm writing. And in the back of my notebook, I keep, you know, 20 pages blank for notes. And, and so I just keep on putting notes in there and putting notes in there. And then, and when the notes get, I, I can't tell what's going to happen next. Then sometimes I do write a timeline, which is just a blank piece of paper with a line across it. And then I, I put little marks and then I write, you know, she goes to the cafe or, you know, her father comes to visit or something like that. Just little, little tiny markers that, that, I, that maybe I can work toward. But sometimes I work toward them and I'm like, oh, no, no, her father's not going to come visit. You know, something else is going to happen. But it helps. It helps to have a little roadmap, especially the first third or first half of the book. I, I like to have that. It's like a little security blanket. But I never know what's, what's going to happen past the first half, really. That happens organically as I'm, as I'm working on it. In Writers and Lovers, the protagonist, Casey, says, and she muses that the hardest thing about writing is getting in every day, breaking through the membrane. And the second hardest thing is getting out. Yeah. Is that true of you as, as, as well? And, 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 and sort of, if so, then, you know, how, how does that manifest itself and what do you do about it? Yeah, the get well, it is so true for me. I find the getting in really difficult. And, you know, again, it's all about the discipline. It's all about forcing yourself to be there when you don't want to be there. I think a lot of people think that you have to feel inspired to write. And it's just not true. I mean, I, it would be, it's nice. To, <laughs> but if you're going to write a novel, you got to, you got to get there when you don't feel like it at all. And it is funny, though. When you get in, you get in. And and sometimes you go in and out during one day. You know, I could be in and out and in and out. And I can take a break, walk around, come back, and then I'm in again. But then the, the getting out, when you're really, really, really in deep, I, I, I particularly remember this from when my kids were in grade school and I would and before they were driving, and I would have to go pick them up. And having to be in that pickup line, you know, or not line, I mean, yeah, it was kind of like a crowd, you know, you'd park and then you'd be with the other parents waiting for your children to come out of school. Those were some of the most difficult times for me socially <laughs> because I just, ah, I just wasn't out completely. And it was, it really was like Casey says, you know, a membrane that I had to pass through and um, I would find it really hard to make conversation, but I'm not really someone who just kind of can stay apart and silent in a crowd. You know, it's not really my personality. So I would kind of force myself to have conversations. Um, but fortunately then when the kids came out, you know, they would bring me back fully 
and then the transition would be complete. Can I ask, I mean, presumably you must get asked all the time whether it's sort of autobiographical writers and lovers because of because of the fact that the protagonist is a writer, an aspiring writer. How do you feel about being asked that? Is it irritating? Is it, were you aware that when you were writing it, it was sort of an inevitable question? How is that for you? You know, it's interesting. I, I would have the exact same question if I were the reader immediately, of course. And I, I'm always wondering when I read books, what the writer is drawing on from their own experience. And, you know, you can't help it. So I think it's a very, very natural question. And and it, it is funny, I, I feel like with fiction, I, you know, I, I write a little bit of nonfiction in essays, but I could never write a whole book length nonfiction piece, because for me, it's just very flat. You know, I need I need to make stuff up. I I need, you know, when I'm kind of, you know, on the scent of something, the way to really, for me, get at what I'm really trying to say requires some fiction. It just does. And I found that out writing Euphoria, actually, which was supposed to be very, very, I was really planning to track the life of Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson and Ray O'Fortune in Papua New Guinea in 1931. And I got five pages in and I just had to break through all of those rules that I had set up. And I, I, I thought I was going to write from her perspective and I wrote from his perspective. But I think sometimes a lot of the reason I, I chose that particular novel to write is because before that I had written a book called Father of the Rain, which was a lot. I drew a lot from my own personal experience about growing up with an alcoholic father. And especially the first section, the second section is complete fiction, but I needed that complete fiction to really reinforce what had happened in the first section. But I got really tired of people asking me, you know, how much of it was true. And so I decided to write something, you know, that was said in 1931 in Papua New Guinea about real life people. But then, of course, I, you know, I had to, even though it was drawing from real life, I did have to use fiction. And then with this, Yes, there are many things you can point to, like Casey has an auction for her book, and I had an auction for my book, and after wait- I was a waitress, Casey, you know, there are a lot of, lot of things you can point to, but I feel like when I, whenever I write, I'm taking my personal experience, I'm taking everything I read, I'm taking my imagination, everything anyone has ever told me, and I'm kind of just putting it in a big cup and shaking it up and throwing it, you know, and, and that's where it lands, you know, that's, that's, it's, it's just sort of a, a mixture of, of everything. And I think probably a few of my very, very favorite scenes are just utterly fictional. And, and for me, that's where they, they get their power. And I, I feel like I'm drawing from myself emotionally, from my past emotionally. I don't I don't really care about the logistics or the facts, you know, but but it's definitely emotional truth that I that I have experienced that I'm that I'm trying to get on the page in this book. Do you think female authors get asked more frequently if if their books are based on their own lives? Is that a, a phenomenon that you are aware of? I think so. I, I don't I don't really know because I don't see a lot of men being interviewed or 
Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I think people are more comfortable asking women personal questions for whatever reason that is. <laughs> I, I do think we can tend to be more open. I think male writers can <clears throat> at least appear a little more aloof and closed and protective of their privacy. I, I think that, that, that people probably uh, tend to think of men as being more uh, cerebral and writing from, from a different place. And, that, and I, I just, you know, obviously I don't think that's remotely true, but I do, I do think the male creative mind is perceived in a completely different way than the female creative mind. Am I right in thinking that Euphoria was, despite, as as you say, you know, being set in Papua New Guinea and, and, and so on, it was um, listed as domestic fiction on Amazon? It was, yes. I, I mean, shocking because they they lived in huts and they had no running water and, and there was no family. <laughs> yeah, it's very odd. I mean, Writers and Lovers is listed on on Amazon. Um, one of the categories is rural fiction. Rural. It's there's no. It's all set in cities. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what happens. <laughs> and can I ask? You 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 said you're um, promoting another book in the U.S. at the moment. Is it, will you be promoting that in the U.K. soon? Yes. Yes. I think it comes out January. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, it's called Five Tuesdays in Winter, and it is a collection of short stories. And I wrote them over kind of two decades, actually. And I'm just so excited to have a, a story collection out. And there are a couple of in, the, in there that I wrote before, Writers and Lovers, when I didn't know I was going to be writing Writers and Lovers at all. But I think that they were kind of, I was practicing for writing about becoming a writer, because they're, you know, there's, they're, there are three female characters in these stories. One is 14, one is in her mid-20s, and one is kind of in her mid to late 30s. And they all they all confess in one way or another to, to being writers. And uh, I, I think I was I was gearing up, but I didn't know it. That's so interesting that you say you've written them over two decades and that some of them were, were almost practice for... Mm-hmm. For writers and loves. I mean, is that something you do? You just write short stories and then put them in a drawer almost as an exercise? Yeah, I write short stories when I'm taking a break from a novel or when I'm between novels. I just, I have fun with them and they're so non-pressure, you know, they're like having a little fling when you're in, in a long marriage or something. <laughs> and uh, I just can have fun with them. And if they don't work out, they don't work out. And, and they, they do end up on my computer for long periods of time. And then half of them have been sent out to magazines and stuff and published in magazines and half of them weren't. And yeah, I do. I love the form. It's a challenging, challenging form. It's harder than a novel. And, and I think over time, my stories have become sort of more novelistic, kind of more complex, definitely longer and, uh, and kind of more comfortable, I would say, less, less restrained by the form. You mentioned earlier drawing on your own experience of of growing up with an alcoholic father. Um, can I ask how that was to do when you were doing that sort of professionally? Is it, is it a painful process? I mean, people sometimes talk about catharsis 
through writing, but a lot of people say they, they don't find catharsis through through writing. Was that a painful process? And what are the um what are the implications that you have to consider in terms of your other family members and so on? Are there sort of I suppose almost personal ethical complexities that you have to navigate when when doing that sort of thing? Yeah. That was a very, very painful book for me to write. And that was the one where I wrote the most short stories <laughs> because I just had to keep taking these really long breaks. I had two little kids at the time and I just couldn't go low, you know, and I, I would start writing and it would just bring me really down and I would have to stop and take long breaks because I just couldn't, couldn't go there. And, uh, and then I'd come back and I'd, you know, write up a storm. It would come out of me very, very quickly. And then I'd have to stop. And, uh, that went on for a long time. And many times I saw some emails to a friend of mine a while ago and, and I'm quite convinced I will never, ever go back to that book. Like I'm that's, that's over. And I think I felt had that feeling a number of times during that book. And then when it did come out, I have to say, a, yes, it was extremely, extremely cathartic. I mean, I was really one of those people who would, you know, bore you with stories of the horrible things that happened in my family, <laughs> if given a chance. And I don't do that at all anymore, ever. You know, like I put it all in the book and I don't even, I mean, it's just out, out of me. It really left me. And I think to make art out of something painful is 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 truly an ex, an, an, a healing experience. And in terms of, it is tricky to, to write fiction um, in which people might recognize themselves or think they recognize themselves. My sister historically thinks that she's other characters. <laughs> like, you know, there'll be this like really loving, wonderful sister, which my sister is. And she'll think it's like the bitch across the street kind of thing. You know, she's like, am I her? And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, it's just very, very funny. And, uh, and so people don't always recognize themselves, certainly, or, you know, I did, I did have one step family member, um, angry about father of the rain, which was really upsetting because in fact, I was, I really tried to capture our love for each other and our connection. And, but he got really angry at how he thought that the, stepmother his his own mother was portrayed so that that was really hard for me but with my family of origin it was i think it was healing for everybody i mean my sister read that book three times or something and she just kept on telling me how useful it was to her to kind of see what happened in from this perspective and my mom read it right away and we just had some really, really, really good conversations around it. And she had a nightmare um, the night she read it uh, all about trying to get me out of the house that we grew up in, that, that she was with my father until she left him. And, and uh, she had this terrible nightmare where she couldn't get me out. And, and she, we had this great conversation afterwards. And, and really, we were just able to to really share feelings and experiences about that time that we really hadn't gotten to before then. So I'm, I'm really happy about really 99% of the outcome of that book. Lily, I'm going to let you go in a moment because I've already taken up quite a lot of your time. But before I do, I wonder if I could 
just ask one one last thing, which is is the question that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, which is if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? You know, it's funny because I really do feel like I wrote Writers and Lovers for my younger self. You know, I would go back and I would I would hand her that book. And I guess really the message is don't give up. Trust yourself. Sit down and do the work and get that all the that negative voice, that that critical voice out of your head and just let yourself write. That is good advice and a fantastic note to end on. Lily, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed it. And to everyone listening, Writers and Lovers is out now. So thank you again, Lily, and thank you all for listening to this series of The Sunday Salon. That's it from me for another season, but I'll be back in the new year with more fabulous authors. Thank you very much and have a lovely Christmas.